$110 for smashing into someone with your car. Student housing is in crisis, but CBC has a hard time doing analysis about it. The U.S. has spent more on nuclear weapons than any other nuclear power combined. Flooding has killed six in Cuba, and NATO opens the largest ever aerial war games since the end of the Cold War. Good morning. It's Wednesday, June 14th. I'm Nora, and here are your headlines. A woman who was struck by a driver a month ago is speaking out about dangerous driving and the pathetic fines that often accompanies it. Sue Steed is 78. She was crossing Adelaide Street North in London, Ontario at Tennant Avenue. The light was green. A driver drove right into her, fracturing her knee. She went from being active and independent to needing round-the-clock care from her daughter, who had to move in with her. Her daughter fears that she will live with lifelong repercussions. The driver was charged with, get this, quote, turn, not in safety, unquote. He was charged $110 for smashing into Steed. Steed's daughter points out that the driver didn't even lose his license. CBC News asked London police how many pedestrians have been hit by cars in the city over the past year. Police told them to file a Freedom of Information request, or that's what I assume, quote, the newsroom was advised to file a Freedom of Information request, unquote, means. Journalists, it will not kill you to be direct and say exactly who is telling you to do these things. Was it a police sergeant? Was it somebody in the office in the police department? Was it someone at the city? But actually, you're just making it sound like police. Be clear. Using CBC stories, they were able to find at least 10 pedestrians had been struck by cars and two of them had died. And, you know, yeah, CBC, you should be building your own public databases about these kinds of events and not relying on police for this data. Even if police handed you this data, you would have to verify it. That's called journalism. So great. I'm so glad that you're using your stories to do this kind of thing. And I really, really wish that people doing steady kinds of reporting like this would keep track of it. So people didn't have to start from zero every time they're trying to figure out how many pedestrians were hit by a car or killed by a car or or whatever. The story mentions that 17 children died in 2020 who were pedestrians. Journalist Rebecca Zanbergen calls them quote unquote pedestrian incidences, which is an amazingly meaningless bunch of words. It's so ambiguous in its language that's lifted from an organization called Parachute Canada, where Zanbergen got the data from. So let's just say 17 child pedestrians who were killed by cars or trucks or large vehicles rather than pedestrian incidents. The article ends with a reminder for drivers to drive slowly because maybe someday you too will be hit by a car, which isn't how any of this works. And actually, it's that kind of fear that makes people not leave their cars and car culture even worse. Next, a different CBC story with a different angle that asks readers a very silly question in the headline, quote, would you share a single room with three other people? Why student housing is in crisis, unquote. I mean, actually, the article doesn't really get into how often people are sharing a room with three other people or more. So it's a bit of a weird decision to call this article that. But anyway, it starts off with a student who lives in Guelph. She pays $840 in rent for a room with water damage and dysfunctional sinks in a house she shares with six other people. Pictures of her apartment show that her walls are certainly gross. 
The next paragraph, after introducing this person, quote, across the country, students are sharing similar stories, unquote. I mean, yeah, I'm sure they are. Let me tell you about the bedroom I shared with a stranger for $400 per month in 2005 in downtown Toronto. It was divided by foam core. So, so far in the article, there's no answer to the question posed in the headline, why student housing is in crisis. This isn't exactly new. Average rents in Guelph for a one-bedroom apartment have spiked 27% since last year. I have questions about that. There's rent control in most, if not all, parts of Ontario, and I don't understand how that could be possible without someone explaining it to me. So what's the issue that led to all of this? Well, quote-unquote, many factors, we're told. Not enough rental stock is one issue, and issue two, well, landlords have been raising rents. But CBC journalist Nisha Patel editorializes that landlords are doing this to cover even higher mortgage costs. Are they? Is that really why they're jacking up rents? Or is it because they can and therefore they will? We don't have to print propaganda from landlords, folks. The article so far has not mentioned student housing or how universities have mostly divested from it, handing new residences to private operators or relying on the market to find a place for students to live. In university towns, this creates disaster conditions for student renters and regular renters alike. But finally, Patel pivots to Mike Moffat, a professor. Now, Mike had a Twitter thread about all of this two weeks ago, so I guess he inspired this piece because it is a weird time for an article like this to come out about student housing. This is more of an August kind of story. But anyway, Moffat argues that government funding has been cut back to universities and therefore universities have been bringing in more international students. Quote, he says they tend to be a very, very profitable group, unquote. International student enrollment is 75% higher than it was five years ago, explains Moffitt. This number is not capped and schools are not required to build more housing for these students. But let's just wait here for a second. Universities are not bringing in more international students because of funding being capped or, or capped to a certain level or whatever, not keeping up with inflation. They would do this anyway. Universities have been chasing international students and colleges have been chasing international students as, as cash cows for many, many, many years. So sure, we can blame the government, but universities and colleges themselves have been driving this problem and they've been driving it for a long time. And so maybe the rental crisis is the fault of international students. Maybe it's bad university planning, but also maybe it's that housing is a commodity and there's no interest in creating affordable spaces. Like, sure, let's blame international students for all of this, but that seems a little bit lazy, especially when they're the ones who are screwed the most in this scenario. Moffat does make the point that this is thanks to bad planning. And so him leading with international students as the main issue is irritating, to say the least. The reality is that universities have been exacerbating this problem for years and years by refusing to build more student housing, as I've already said. This was a crisis when I was a student activist 15 years ago. It is in a recent spike in international students. These are long-term trends that you can trace back to being made far worse by previous governments of Dalton McGuinty and of Mike Harris. Because it isn't just housing. It's housing and transit and tuition fees that have doubled, and so many other ways that the screws have been turned to students. None of this is new. It's just that the problems are finally reaching crises points and students are the ones paying the price. Of course, because news is so siloed in Canada, there's no mention of the hundreds of Indian international students who are all facing deportation because their documents were forged without their knowledge. The article treats all international students as if they're attending public legitimate institutions, but that isn't the case. And 
the students who are facing deportation, the students who come for career colleges or on sketchy student visas have even less support than the ones who come to study at the Conestogas or the Laurier's of the world. Those students who are fighting against their deportation, by the way, they've had their deportation orders delayed and protests are ongoing. Next, news from Democracy Now! reports that the United States has spent more on nuclear weapons than all other nations in the world combined. This information comes from the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons. Nuclear weapons spending worldwide has increased for the third year in a row. Nuclear powers have spent $44 billion last year on nuclear weapons. There is currently $278.6 billion in ongoing nuclear weapons contracts and $15.9 billion in new contracts awarded in 2022. Arms manufacturers spent $113 million lobbying the United States and French governments. To Cuba now, where six people are dead because of torrential rains that have been battering the east and center of the country. Miguel Diaz-Canel, Cuba's president, said that there's no question that these floods are not normal. Quote, they are directly related to climate change. Unquote. He said, the floods have followed a period of extreme drought that hit provinces on the eastern side of Cuba. Millions of hectares of crops have been damaged, mostly sugarcane, and bridges and roads have been washed out, reports Agence France Presse. And finally, NATO has just opened its largest ever aerial war games in Germany, reports Democracy Now! War games, in case you don't know, is when military personnel from various countries engage in military drills. Think of that Simpsons episode where Homer joins the Navy. War games were also reported to be the guise under which explosives were placed on the Nord Stream pipeline, as per the reporting by Seymour Hirsch. About 10,000 personnel for 25 countries are participating in these war games. There will be 250 warplanes. Japan and Sweden, who are not NATO countries, are also participating. The New York Times notes that this is the largest military air exercises since the end of the Cold War, and that the event was, quote, a pointed demonstration to Russia, unquote. The event has been planned since 2018. Part of the event will be to land planes in Lithuania, Poland, Romania, and the Czech Republic to demonstrate just how fast the planes can get there from Germany. Each of these countries were, quote, once under Moscow's thumb, unquote, reports the New York Times' Lara Jakes. Those are your headlines for Wednesday, June 14th. I'm Nora. I hope you have a great day.